celebrating 10 years of podcasting and online ministry, you are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Now join your hosts, Dr. Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. Coming to you from Ronan, Montana and Pilot Mountain, North Carolina to the world via the World Wide Web. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. This is yours truly, Brian Chilton. We're joined alongside by the cowboy apologist, Curtis Evelo, And we hope and pray that you're doing well. Believe it or not, next week is Holy Week. And Curtis, I forgot to mention this before the podcast. I, we're going to probably have to come on a different date. Our church actually has a special Thursday night uh, service coming up next week. So I'll get with Curtis and we'll work out uh, probably another day or time or something like that. So stay tuned to uh, Bellator Christie and our, our social media apps and we'll get the latest uh, on that. In fact, it didn't even dawn on me until did the introduction that, hey, you know what? <laughs> Palm Sunday's this Sunday. <laughs> Easter yeah. the following Sunday is like oh yeah we got a we got a service next Thursday night so uh, looking forward to that there's a, this is a special holy time of the year and uh, we we pray that you take time to uh, focus on the Creator focus on the sacrifice that Christ made and of course on that glorious resurrection morning and uh, that's that's what it's all about folks and in my opinion I love Christmas don't get me wrong. Uh, but Easter for me is where it's at, and apparently for the early church, uh, that was where it was at for them too, because they had. Uh, in fact, history tells us that they would often baptize uh, people saved the entire year on Easter Sunday morning. They woke up early Easter Sunday morning and baptized uh, people in, in many churches. So, uh, a special time of the year, and uh, we hope and pray that you take time again to uh, be in God's house. Uh, to worship Him and thank Him for the wonderful things that He's done uh, to bring us life and to bring us salvation. One quick note before we move on. I want to let you know the final edits of Conversations About Heaven have been submitted. Waiting for uh, the the, the uh, clearance for the um, from the editors or publishers, I should say, and I'm going to formulate an index. Unlike the first book I, I made, we're going to have an index on this, which is going to make it even better. So uh, that should be coming out here in the next couple of months. Stay tuned for the latest. I would assume that it would be out before the end of season six, uh, but I'll, we'll keep you up to date on the very latest on that. I'm excited about this project, and I hope it'll be a blessing uh, to you and, and to many people, in fact. So with that being said, let's turn it over to our cowboy apologist, Curtis Evelo. Boy, this technical, this technical stuff, uh, technology is just not... Uh... Not something I guess we're, we're we're really mastering just yet. I I've been trying to get the, the the thing going up on Facebook and on YouTube and uh yeah so 
Hey, Curtis, you, you did a you did a we're, we're trying, folks. You, you did a great job. You know, that's one thing God's convicted me of here lately is to it, it, going through the life of Moses is to trust other people, trust leaders, trust individuals to spread out responsibilities. And so, you did a fantastic job today, my friend. And so, so uh, looking forward to what uh, the future holds for the Bellator Christie Podcast. <laughs> so. I wanted to take a few seconds here, and you do something really unique um, in your in your backyard, and uh, it's it's to, to celebrate seasons and things. And um, maybe there's listeners that don't know what uh, you have done in the past, um, but can you expound on that today? It, it's there's some really neat and unique things that uh, draw attention to it. Absolutely. I'm going to try to pull up a picture here if I can find it right quick and share the screen to show everybody what we're talking about. But we we do indeed have a cross in our backyard. This was made by my my father-in-law. He uh, actually took two railroad ties and uh, and made this uh, to made the cross and then we place a um, we place cloths over it for each and every uh, for different times of the year, different seasons, and I'm going to pull this up real quickly. Uh, you should be able to see it on screen. Uh, there's a picture of the cross out back. You see the sunshine. We got the pine trees behind it. Uh, is it showing now? Is it yep. Okay. Yep. Wonderful. So yeah. So these are two. These are two railroad ties. My father-in-law uh, made it. Uh, I, I found that I had to nail these cloth, the cloth in place. Uh, so the in different church traditions, uh, you, and you really find this in what's called more the high church, um, which is more like Anglican, Episcopalian, uh, other churches like that. And of course, even in the Catholic Church as well, uh, there's there's a liturgical calendar that's used. And uh, I think that even though I'm Baptist, I think this is important for many Christians to know because because. Each and every day of the year, each and every season is important. So for the vast majority of the year, uh, you have the color green, uh, the color green that's uh, that's aired and uh, or or that's posted on there. And so that just that's the common time uh, for for uh, of the year. And then then here you see a picture of uh, the color red. Uh, red is used uh, for uh, special seasons. It's used during Holy Week, uh, coming up starting Palm Sunday through through um, through um, Friday. Or at least at least some people use it. Now on Fridays, Good Fridays, the cross goes bare. Uh, there's nothing on it. Or sometimes people will put a black cloth on there. Usually, I just leave mm-hmm. mine bare, representing the death of Christ, and it's left bare until Easter Sunday morning when the white cloth is placed there. And there's there's forty days of Easter, so that's left on for forty days, and then it goes um, then it goes back to green. Now during the time of Lent, the forty days before the time of Easter, uh, you put on the purple cloth, and then around the time of Christmas. Uh, around the Advent season, normally, uh, at least I do, I know, know most traditions do as well, they put on a blue cloth uh, representing that time of the year. So it's it's been a blessing to me uh, to be able to do this. It just As I put these cloths up, it just puts me in remembrance of what time of the year it, what time of the year it is, what we're celebrating during that time, and what it is uh, that the church 
it really keeps it focused on Christ and the ministry and life that he had and still has in the life of the church. By the way, let me say one more thing. Uh, the color red is also put, put up on the day of Pentecost, and usually I put it up the week of Pentecost as well. So uh, another important season in the life of the church. Yeah, it's just it's just drawing your attention to focus on the changes of the seasons uh, of of the church and of Christianity and of of our faith in general. Absolutely, absolutely, and we have a lot to celebrate. We have a lot to be thankful for, and in every season of the year, uh, there's something to celebrate. Even in the even in the com- what's called the common time, uh, the the time where the gr- where the green is posted on there. There's it doesn't mean that that's not special. It just the color green speaks of the everlasting life that we have with Christ, having God, and so even the color green between Easter season, Pentecost season, and the time of Advent leading to Christmas, even then, you know, it puts you in the mindset that uh, we're we're part of an everlasting family. We have everlasting life in Christ. Just like an ever. Green pine tree. Evergreen pine tree. In fact, you got me stuck on that term evergreen, talking about uh, articles that uh, that have consistency, that, that continue, that have constancy, that are, that are constantly viewed, uh, and you use the term that they go evergreen. And I've really thought about that, mm-hmm. how even our lives in Christ, once we receive Christ, our lives essentially go evergreen. We have that eternal life mm-hmm. found in Christ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And you happen to say that my my uh, most viewed article is my first article, which I wrote, which was the Crimson Worm, the Crimson which is Worm. actually talking about this season right now. Absolutely. And I would encourage everyone to go take a look at that article. Just type in, go, go to bellatorchristie.com, type in Crimson Word, Word, Crimson Worm, Crimson Worm, I'll get it out in a minute. Uh, type that out on the search bar, <laughs> and, and it'll direct you to the to the uh, article. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One thing I do want to do today before we get fired up and going on this um, is um, I want to I want to ask our listeners or kind of maybe push our listeners to do something. The people listening and watching. This season right now that we're in, we're coming upon Palm Sunday, and then we're coming upon, you know, the, 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 the cross, right? There's three crosses there. What I really want to do is challenge our listeners to consider the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross should challenge our theology should challenge our, uh, or or we should let it challenge our theology and let it challenge our church traditions and so on. The thief on the cross was there. He was a thief. He did nothing other than recognize when Jesus was dying on the cross next to him that that was an innocent man. And at a point, he realized, wait a minute, This man is more than just a man. And he looked at Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. 
folks, that word remember is not a, you know, hey, I, I forgot my keys on the counter. I need to remember, you know, remember them. Go back and get them. I remembered where they were. That's not what that means. That means be intentional about thinking of me and taking me. And I think it's important for us to realize that that thief on the cross, he didn't get down and uh, do anything to to receive Jesus' grace at that time. He didn't get baptized. He didn't pray the sinner's prayer. He did nothing but ask Jesus, remember me. And then he said, and Jesus said, I promise. So he said, remember me. Jesus says, I promise. Mm. It's a big thing. It's a big deal. And I always like to come back to that and, and remember that, um, that time period. And just remember the simplicity of what Jesus has asked us to do. What God has asked us to do is to just have faith, to align ourselves with him, to believe that he's going to do what he's going to do, and to have that allegiance that we hold tight, that Jesus is the only way. Amen. So, here today, folks, we're uh, jumping into the the cosmological argument. Um, and this right here, <laughs> Brian loves this argument. He loves this loves this end of it. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> You could say nerded out on this stuff, huh? Yeah, man. I'd just say nerd. It would work out, too. <laughs> You're muted, Brian. I am. Well, I was just going to say, you could just say nerd, and that would work out, too. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But, yeah, it's, it's a great argument. I was... Uh, uh, it's it's a fantastic argument, and in fact, I think it uh, it's something that that uh, speaks to us as we look at creation. Uh, I mean, there there are several other arguments we're going to discuss uh, as we go through uh, through uh, this apologetic section on how we know God exists and the knowledge and revelation of God. But yeah, the cosmological argument I think is uh, is very powerful. It's a very powerful argument. In fact, it's been used by people as early as Plato. Uh, and I think you could even make an argument that it goes back into the pages of Scripture because uh, it was the psalmist David who wrote, the heavens declare the glory of God. And so that essentially is summarizes the, the cosmological argument to a degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, gonna, I was actually going to use a couple of Scriptures. I don't know if you were going to go there or not, but yeah, I mean, just the just the simple fact that um, John makes an argument for it right off the bat in in, in John one, um, and in in verse three, and then in Romans Paul makes the, essentially the same argument or or another argument there in verse uh, twenty, you know, and uh, verse uh, chapter one verse twenty. Yeah, and so the scripture, I mean, the scripture is even, a, I mean, it, it, it is based on, a. it already has the presupposition, if you want to use that term, that uh, God mm-hmm. exists. It presupposes the existence of God uh, throughout. Now, that doesn't mean 
that doesn't it is not a case for the presuppositional methodology uh, but they, they do, because the scripture does provide evidence in cases for uh, for god uh, such as you know, I think of Psalms fourteen one, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, and uh, various other passages of Scripture that we can mention. Uh, Genesis one, you can make an argument that it's very cosmological in scope uh, because it talks about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It attributes the existence of the heavens and earth to a creator we call God. And by the way, God is a title we use for the divine being. You know, uh, Scripture tells us that his divine name is Yahweh. Uh, but even the term Yahweh doesn't even encompass uh, who God is. So, I mean, when we use titles and names, they're very limited. Even they are very limited in telling us about that divine being we know as God. Yeah, I was I was gonna just comment on that the this particular argument doesn't necessarily um, get us to the Christian God, but it gets us to a Creator God. Absolutely, and that's an important thing to remember about all of these arguments that we're going to talk about. Well, at least the majority of them, maybe not all of them. Uh, the majority of them tells us about. Uh, what nature tells us about God. If you remember in the last podcast, we spoke of the differences, the distinctions between natural theology and special revelation. Uh, natural theology is available to everyone. It's general. It's available to everyone. But it may not give us all the specific details about who God is and about what salvation is all about. But it does, for the someone who's uh, struggling with the existence of God, I think it provides very good data and very good evidence to suggest that God exists, whoever that God may be. Now, whoever that God is, it, it requires you know even more special revelation to to identify uh, the personal the personal name of God and the purpose and mission that God has for us as human beings. Excellent. Yeah. So let's just jump in and explain what the cosmological argument is. So the cosmological argument consists of a series of arguments that demonstrate how the existence of creation argues for the existence of God. And there are numerous arguments out there, but the two most popular cosmological arguments are the Thomistic argument, or arguments, uh, from his Five Ways in the Summa Theologica, and uh, also the what's known as the Kalam cosmological argument, uh, from um, which William Lane Craig has popularized. But actually, that had its root back in a... Uh, 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 an Islamic from an Islamic scholar by the name of uh, El uh, Al Ghazali, uh, who lived in the medieval ages. So, uh, so, but anyhow, it, it, this goes even beyond the scope of uh, just Christianity, but goes into an overall argument from people from different religions, arguing that uh, the fact that we are here now uh, tells us that there must be something that exists beyond the scope. Of, uh, of space and time, something beyond the scope of, uh, of, of reality. And, um, and we know that ultimate reality to be God. So it's, it looks here that we got two um, 
parts to this. So what are the horizontal and the vertical axis of the cosmological argument? Okay, so um, here we go. Let me get this over here to... Uh, okay, all right, I, f I found it. I was trying to get myself to the Summa Theologica because I'm going to pull this up here in just a few moments. But um, Norman Geisler, in his in his systematic theology, he talks about uh, the cosmological argument having a horizontal and uh, a a vertical axis. So the horizontal, you know, being on the horizon from from left to right, the vertical being up and down. And so uh, the horizontal argument, he argues consists of arguments like the Kalam. Kalam, he argues, the Arabic means eternal argument, but argues for a beginner of the universe. And this is what the cosmological argument is typically known for, that, uh, that we are here, we know that we had to have a beginning, so therefore the universe must have a beginning, and that means there's something must be that something that must exist beyond the scope of this universe to account for why anything exists. So this would uh, this is the horizontal argument. Not only was this uh, argument uh, uh, embraced by uh, by the Kalam cosmological argument, it was also embraced by Bonaventure, who lived from 1217 to 1274. And um, and he he followed certain Arab philosophers. He was a Christian, but he followed certain Arab philosophers. And then the vertical argument, uh, the vertical argument was championed by Thomas Aquinas. And uh, so where the horizontal form of the argument argues from the past origin of the cosmos to an original first cause of it, the vertical form of the cosmological argument begins with the present contingent existence of the of the universe and, ins and insists that there must be a current necessary being that caused it and sustains it. So in other words, there are two, these are two different ways of approaching the, the necessity of God's existence. One starts from the past, the other one starts from the present, and, and argues for, for necessity. And they're essentially doing the same things, but they're coming at it from two different angles. Gotcha. So then what is the Kalam cosmological argument then? So the, the Kalam cosmological argument, uh, it was first proposed by, a, a form of it was proposed by uh, an Arabic scholar by the name of El-Ghazali, um, I was trying to think. I was trying to see here if it listed when he lived. I mean, he lived in the medieval ages, uh, but um, it, it essentially says this: everything that has a everything that has a beginning has a cause, and it's important um, that we that we express that it, that statement that has a beginning or begins to exist. It's not saying that. Um, Everything that exists, everything exists has a cause, because then a person can come back and say, well, God exists, he must have a cause. Well, not necessarily. The, the key is everything that began to exist or begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a cause. And that cause is argued 
to be God. Um, now, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the, the Kalam cosmological argument doesn't necessarily say that God exists, but it's implied heavily in the argument because if the universe had a cause, the question is what caused it? And... Um, and so, and so you go a step further with, uh, farther with this argument to say that the universe couldn't have created itself, had to be something from outside of it. And so the most rational explanation for why the universe or anything exists is that there must be a spaceless, uh, intelligent mind that uh, brought forth everything that exists, a spiritual being that was outside the scope of space and time that brought everything into existence that exists. And so, since the universe began to exist, it's argued that the universal cause uh, for the for the universe itself, or the cause for the universe itself, is God. And so, that's how this argument works. So then, uh, then go ahead and name some of the objections commonly given against the Kalam cosmological argument. Well, interestingly, the, the the sticking point isn't with the first premise of the argument. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. No one disagrees with that. But the second part is the sticky point. The universe began to exist. And so the question is, did the universe begin to exist? And there's a lot of different theories out there on how the universe came to be. Now, one of the popular arguments, which actually coheres very well with the Christian worldview, is a theory called the Big Bang Theory. A lot of people think that this is anti-Christian. It's actually not. Uh, it was it was produced, it was uh, even postulated by a, um, uh, what was his first name? Lamatri, I believe is his last name. He was a Catholic priest was it Frederick? I mean, that's probably wrong, but his his last name was Lamatri. He was a French Catholic priest. He um, he he first suggested that the universe came into existence, and it must have had some type of bang when it uh, when it it came into being. And so it was later added the Big Bang theory. That's where that came from. So a lot of people may be surprised to know that it was actually a Christian who developed that theory. Now the question is. What banged the theory, what banged the universe into existence, or what produced the bang? That might not have been the best way to word that, but <laughs> what produced the bang that brought the universe into existence? And so, uh, some people will say that uh, the universe has all, always, always been here. So, we can really limit this down to three arguments. One, the universe didn't have a beginning. And we see this uh, from the what's called the steady state theory. Uh, this theory suggests that the universe has always been as it is, has always been as it currently stands. It didn't have a beginning. It's just always been here. It's an eternal uh, steady state. Uh, it doesn't have a beginning, won't have an end. Um, so, some believe that uh, that something else from outside produced it, but it was a natural cause. So there may be one theory out there suggests that that there's these different universe, universes and they're kind of like bubbles. And when these bubbles bump against one another, it pops and creates another universe. And so you have all these huge universes of bubbles and they're pumping it into one another and producing other universes. And there's this one that's like... 
there's two lines and they're wiggling and every time they get too close and pop then it <laughs> pops a universe and I'm here. So <laughs> these are some of the theories that's out there. I mean, that's one that's out there that these little wiggling planes and they exist. And then, but but there's problems with all of that. Uh, Lawrence Krauss uh, from Arizona State University. He uh, was a, is a cosmologist there. Uh, he wrote a book, Universe from Nothing. He argues that the universe came from nothing. But the problem is that the nothing he describes is a uh, is a vacuum, but that's not nothing, that's something. So the nothing he proposes brought, that brought something into existence is actually something. And so it, it's just a wordplay. And that's what happens, that's what gets people tripped up on some of these popular level books. Uh, these these cos- A lot of cosmologists, especially in the atheist camp, uh, they'll they'll produce some of these books and they'll say something clever like the universe came from nothing, and you'll think the first thing you'll think is the absence of anything, but that's not mm-hmm. what he's talking about. He's talking about these these vacuums, um, which is a very physical something. And then there's also the theory out there is the multiverse theory, and this theory suggests that there's this huge eternal multiverse. And uh, this multiverse produces these smaller universes, and we're one of perhaps billions of universes produced by the multiverse. The problem with this... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, yeah, kind of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. you got this huge vat of chocolate and all these bubbles popping up, and we're just one of those bubbles. Uh, But the problem with that is that... uh, (laughs) Borg, Vilenkin, and Guth, three cosmologists, uh, found that mathematically it's an impossibility for any universe with inflation to to have existed forever. And if this universe came into existence the way it suggested that it did, then even a multiverse would have had to have a beginning. So you really haven't solved anything with a multiverse view You've just kicked the ball down the field, uh, and you just mm-hmm. added an extra step. So it really hasn't solved anything. And quite frankly, there's there's no universal evidence. There's no objective evidence, to my knowledge, right now, that suggests that the multiverse is an actual place uh, that, it, that it actually does exist. Uh, so there's a lot of problems with this. Going back to the same, going back to the same, uh, to the other, you know, those little two planes that wiggles and bumps and creates a universe. There's even a problem with that uh, in these bubble theories. If you go back far enough, you've got to have the original bubble, and if you, and you've got to even account for why are they two planes, or there are two planes, and why are they wiggling? What right. set it in motion, and what causes right. them to move? Again, you haven't resolved anything. You've just kicked the ball down the field. Um, so ultimately, it, it, these these um, these objections really don't get around the problem. They just kick the ball down the field uh, a little further and and don't really answer the question. Um, could it be that God used a multiverse to bring this universe into existence? It's possible, but. Uh, does that resolve the issue that uh, 
does it does it does it resolve the issue that the Kalam cosmological argument brings up? I don't think it does because that calls you could say. You could even say if the multiverse did bring the universe into existence, it was just a conduit used by the ultimate cause being God. Now again, I'm I'm not really <laughs> I, I don't know that there is a multiverse. Uh, it's it's a popular it's a popular theory today, but um, I, I just haven't seen enough evidence that compels me to believe that there is a multiverse. Yeah. You know, uh, Stephen Meyer made the comment um, in, in at one time that about the law of gravity um, being one of the sources. In his statement, he said, "Because of a law like gravity, the universe can and will keep producing itself." Hmm. And I, I, I question or I ask, well, then where did the law? of gravity come from. And that gets into the information argument. And and so you said Stephen Meyer said that? Yep. So he said the law now can you say it again the law of gravity? Uh, not Steve not Stephen Meyer. Um oh goodness. Uh the scientist that just passed away not too long ago. Stephen Hawking. Oh Stephen famous. Hawking. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. Totally pull that one out. <laughs> Stephen Meyer, no, he's a solid guy. Yeah. Stephen Hawking, that's who I was talking about. So, so Stephen Hawking. Total apology. Yeah. Oh, you know, you're fine. Um, so yeah, there are there are problems with that because he's basing that on the universe that we know now. So it would be kind of like if you're if you're looking at someone who made a chocolate pie. And um, you said that, and you see that uh, the, uh, the, sh the shell of the pie must exist and you have the pudding in it to make the pie. So you'd say something like that a, that a universe, that the pie would have to have the dip down below to uh, permit the pudding to settle where it does. Well, you haven't answered the question as to why there's a shell there, why there's pudding there, and, and why all of it has gelled together as it has. Uh, I mean, I know that's a, probably a horrible illustration, but it, it, it's, well, it's, comparable, it it's comparable to, why, to, to what uh, Hawking is saying. You can say that because we live in a universe where gravity has been used to do similar things. Mm -hmm. But would that work in another universe where there's other laws of physics? Maybe, maybe not. I was just, you lost me at pudding. <laughs> so, just, just, just we say pudding around here. Pudding. So. <laughs> pudding. <laughs> you got to put the ing. Yeah. Speaking uh, of that, I speaking did. of different accents, I heard something the other day where... Uh, a person said root, just like just like you say it, root. And I th automatically thought, that guy's been hanging around Curtis. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so then Thomas Aquinas had an argument there, and it was, a, it was called the vertical argument. You want to give a little bit of insight on that? Yeah, so let's go back to um, Norm Geisler and then also look at uh, what uh, Thomas Aquinas wrote here. So, um, looking at the vertical, um, 
and we'll, and we'll come back to the Big Bang here in just just a few moments because because Geisler has some good stuff uh, on this as well. So the vertical argument is is stated in several ways by Thomas Aquinas, and one is an argument from contingency, and the other one is an argument from change. Now, of course, now he even has a, a cosmological argument there uh, as as I'll mention here in just a minute. But the the argument from contingency begins with the fact that at least one contingent being exists, That is, and a contingent being is something that depends on someone else. Uh, that is a being that exists but can not exist. Is it necessary for us to exist? Well, Thomas Aquinas would say no. But if you think about it, our existence is contingent or reliant on the existence of our parents. That's the way biology works. So, Curtis, you've never met my two parents, but because I exist and I'm talking to you, you know that just surely by the way biology works and by, by the way the world works, that I must have a mother and father. And the same thing with you. Now I've met your mom online, so but I know just by the fact that you're you're here uh, means that you had a mom and dad. So right. the fact that we exist necessitates or makes necessary the existence of our parents. So he goes on to say a necessary being is one that exists but cannot not exist. It means, in other words, it's absolutely necessary that a necessary being exists. So he argues something like this, and this is what Geisler says of Thomas Aquinas. Whatever exists but can could not exist needs a cause for its existence, that is, a contingent being, since the mere possibility of existence does not explain why something exists. Secondly, but nothing cannot produce something. And this is just pure common sense. We know that absolute nothingness is not going to produce somethingness. So three, therefore something necessarily exists as the ground for everything that does not that does exist but can not exist. In short, it is a violation of the principle of causality to say that a contingent being, someone who relies on their existence from something else, can account for his own existence. In other words, Curtis, you and I exist because we had parents. We okay. did not just magically think ourselves into existence. That's just ri- ridiculous to even think that. We we didn't. What? We weren't just. I didn't. <laughs> now, some people in the world may want to think, make you think that we no, did. No, no, no. I, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> some people may want you to think that we just magically caused ourselves to exist. But is that true? You know, I was born in the year 1977. Prior to 1977, oh, I will bless your heart. <laughs> I knew I liked you. <laughs> That's a southern way of saying. Well, uh... In the South, bless your heart has many connotations. It can be a good thing oh, or it can be a bad thing. Uh, I, I know. I use it in a good way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we, but we didn't just magically. Th- I mean, prior to 1977. I did not exist. I was mm-hmm. I was nothing. I had no mind. I had no will. I had no emotions. I had no body. I had I had no right. soul. I was not. Before 1977, Brian Chilton did not exist. 
but after, post-1977, I do exist. See, every single being, if you think of it in the, in the sense of geometry, every single, be, every single one of us, we're a ray. That point represents the start, and if you think of the arrow going outward, going for eternity, right. we, we have right. a start, we have no end, because death is not the end of us. We go and spiritually live somewhere until the time of resurrection. So it's just a matter of location in the end, quite honestly. But God is the only existence that is a line. You know, a line has no beginning and no end. It just goes on for eternity. God has no beginning. God has no ending. That's why Jesus said of himself that I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the beginning and before the beginning. He is the ending and after the ending. There is no start and end to the existence of God. And that's why Thomas Aquinas says God is pure actuality. God is pure existence. And God is the only being who can have existence like that, quite frankly. Uh, so, uh, so there has to be a necessary entity to account for the existence of everything else. And that necessary being must be God. It's not that we have a choice in the matter. There must be a God. And then he also argues from the argument from change, uh, which begins with the fact that there are changing beings. Whatever changes passes from a state of potentiality, uh, potency, for that change to a state of being actual, actualized act. And then he goes on to say, but no potentiality can actualize itself any more than the potential for steel to become a skyscraper can actualize itself into a skyscraper. If no potency can actualize itself, and yet at least one other being is actualized, then ultimately there must be something that is pure actuality with no potentiality. Otherwise, there would be no ground for why something now exists that has the potential not to exist. And essentially saying that God is pure act. He is pure existence. He is not only the reason why we began to exist, he's also the reason why everything is sustained in his existence. There you go. So, yeah. just it's powerful. And if you, if you look at the words of Thomas Aquinas himself, he argues from um, the, the uh, efficient cause. He said, uh, the, the, well, the first way, he, these are the five ways. The first and more manifest way is from the argument from motion. Uh, the, some things are set in motion. They're set in motion by something else. This is the classic cosmological argument that everything is set in motion by God himself. Second, The second way is from the nature of efficient calls. Uh, the first efficient calls uh, to which everyone gives the name God. Um, so, um, and we could talk about that, but let's move on. The third way is, uh, here again, we're talking about for taking from the possibility and necessity, and we talked about God being a necessary being. The fourth way is taken from a gradation to be found in things, and that's, that's what we were talking about a while ago, about change being found in certain things. Uh, he also says this, I want to read this, Therefore, there must also be something... Uh, which is to all beings the cause of their being goodness and every other perfection, and this we call God. 
And then the fifth way is uh, taken from the governance of the world uh, that we see that things that which lack intelligence, such as natural bodies, act for an end. This is evident from their acting always or nearly always in the same way so as to obtain the best result. In other words, these five things, he goes on to say, and then he, he ends by saying this, Therefore, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end. This is a teleological argument he gives, and this being we call God. So we could spend a lot more time in these five ways. And in fact, that might be a good podcast for us to have later on to go back and explain the five ways of Thomas Aquinas in further detail. It's, it, it would just take us beyond the scope of the podcast because it's just so rich. Mm-hmm. We made the comment um, on a podcast in the past, and I I cannot remember how you put it, but I do remember us talking about that the the universe is is showing that it's winding down. And go back to the uh, Thomas Aquinas thought, well, then somebody had to have wound it up. Absolutely. It, it had to have had some sort of force to get it to to move or to stay moving um, in that sort. Absolutely. And I can't remember which one it was, which, but where it was, but I remember that, and it hit me hard, and I and just happened to think about it again. Well, and it's so true because for, for the universe to start as it did, so, you know, God wound it up, but he, he continues to govern it. And the fact of the matter is that the universe cannot sustain itself for for an eternity. I mean, the second law of thermodynamics tells us that. Uh, entropy rules the day mm-hmm. in this universe. Now, there's another state <laughs> that's going to be in heaven that I write about in conversations about heaven uh, that I, that I mention in that book that you'll have to take a look and see. But I'll just, just say for now that things are going to vastly change in the eternal realm, in the, especially in heaven. Things are going to drastically change there. Sure. It, it's, it, to me, that, that this this end of it, as we get into this, and in fact, we're going to find more here when we get down into our other question about a certain telescope that just so happens to kind of help out the Christian worldview on this. So, um Let's get into the next one. So, the Big Bang Theory. Um, what is the Big Bang Theory, and does it pose a problem for modern Christianity? So, I, I looked it up real quickly. His name is George Lemaitre. Uh, he is a. He's not French. He's Belgian. He's a Belgian cosmologist and Catholic priest. Um, so, George Lemaitre, uh, a Belgian cosmologist and Catholic priest, he is the one who uh, proposed the idea of the Big Bang Theory. By the way, Albert Einstein didn't like it. He didn't like the theory uh, because it, it posed... He, he found it very disturbing, but it turned out that uh, the uh, Big Bang Theory proved to be true. And there's a lot of stuff we can mention. We talk about inflation. We talk about... Um, there's, there's several things that could be mentioned. Let's, let's look back over here. Um, We'll see. First of all, um, the universe is expanding, uh, and in and, and not only is it expanding, but it's it's speeding up every every moment. It's 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 uh, expanding faster and faster. 
um, it, and eventually it's going to run out of usable energy. And so uh, the second law of thermodynamics tells us this. So uh, an entity cannot run out of an infinite amount of energy. It's going to eventually run down into ultimately uh, run out of juice. Uh, the universe is expanding. Third, the radiation echo given off by the universe. Uh, this was discovered by Arno Allen uh, Penzias and Woodrow, excuse me, Robert Woodrow Wilson has the identical wavelength of that which would be given off by a gigantic explosion. Uh, so the radiation echo tells us that the universe is expanding. The large mass of energy resulting from such an explosion and predicted by Big Bang proponents was discovered by the Hubble Space Telescope, Hubble Space Telescope, having problems with my words tonight, in 1992. And then Einstein's own theory of general relativity demanded a beginning of time. Uh, he resisted this viewpoint for years and uh, tried to get around it, but unfortunately he had to eventually accept the fact that the universe did have a beginning, a start point. So there's nothing about the Big Bang Theory. I know it's... Uh, it's um, often been thought that it's an atheistic theory, but, but nothing further could be the truth. Uh, this just simply says that the universe had a starting point. Now, the problem with that is, is that the best answer for why the universe had a starting point was that God started it. And so uh, that's why there's, there were so many people who were disturbed by the notion of the Big Bang Theory when it was first proposed by Georges Lemaitre, a Belgian cosmologist. I'm, say, I'm saying that again because uh, I made an error in the first of the podcast. I want to correct that. Yeah. So we just talked about her. I just mentioned we just had a new telescope go up. So how do the findings of the James Webb Telescope uh, impact our cosmological understanding uh, of creation? So, if it does at all, the James Webb Telescope is the space telescope uh, that uses infrared uh, technology, and but because of using infrared technology, it's able to detect uh, distant galaxies and objects that the Hubble Space Telescope just can't detect. Now, it's a very strong. Uh, I, I would dare say it is multi-billion, ten-billion-dollar uh, space telescope mm -hmm. that's used to look deep in the cosmos, and in fact, it has detected uh, not only distant galaxies, but now uh, six days ago, it, NASA reported that uh, th that it's even revealed exoplanets in the infrared images that it's produced, uh, even spotting a. Uh, uh, swirling gritty clouds on a remote planet found light years away from our planet Earth. I mean, it's really unveiled just how much more is out there in the universe. The problem is, and this made national news, and you've probably seen clickbait articles on the issue, uh, there's a lot of articles out there saying that uh, the James Webb Telescope has overturned the Big Bang Theory. But that's not necessarily true. It's really not true at all. Uh, there's so much evidence out there for the Big Bang Theory or the expansion of the universe, as we've already mentioned, that it would take a lot to overturn that theory. But there is a problem that the James Webb T Space Telescope found. As they looked at the most remote areas of the universe 
it was expected that the galaxies would be much smaller, much dimmer, and not full, not as fully developed as uh, galaxies that were produced much later in the universe's history. What they found was fully developed uh, galaxies that were far larger, far hotter uh, than they ever anticipated. So the question is, mm -hmm. what's up with that? And so there are many yep. different options out there. Some people uh, posit that the universe may be older than it was expected. Maybe they just haven't looked deep. That Maybe they have to look deeper in the universe, uh, or look farther back in time. Um, another option is that um that that uh that maybe the the uh, universe didn't have a beginning that's a more scandalous idea uh that the universe didn't have a beginning and maybe it's it is just a steady state maybe the big bang theory was wrong that's what some some people have posited maybe whenever the universe began maybe the galaxies formed a lot quicker than what they anticipated and that's an option on the table as well but it's possible that a fourth option is is uh, is true, and that is that the universe is far bigger than we ever thought. Mm, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So it's already been estimated that the universe is some two hundred fifty times bigger than what we could observe, and if that's the case, then maybe the starting point of the universe is far deeper than what anyone ever anticipated. Maybe it goes back even farther than what even the James Webb Space Telescope can can find. Maybe there's going to have to be something even bigger than the James Webb Telescope to look to look that far. Um, one thing that's amazing, no matter what the, what the answer is, is that this universe is huge. Far bigger than any of us could ever think or imagine. And the... Yeah. the the amazing thing is, is no matter how big this universe is, God is even bigger. <laughs> so you know, I was just going to say that. Do, do you have happen to have pictures of, of the colors that that James Webb is getting? Um, I remember you, you sharing a color with me that one time, and it was like the the intensity of of this the 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 way this camera or the way this telescope can actually take in some of these pictures and colors is is truly amazing and and beautiful i mean it's it is amazing um, i'm going to share my screen here also, yeah here are some pictures that uh you, you, we can find online uh i mean here's one um, let's see if it'll let me go. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not sure what happened. Sound, too, um, that was captured. Look at that. Yeah, oh, here we go. Can, can you see that okay? Yeah. Yeah, so, so here, yep. here's an image. I mean, is it showing my mouse there as well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So here's an image. It's That's incredible. Um, it's this is it's a it captures rarely seen prelude to a supernova. Um, here's another image of newborn stars sculpt their galaxies in an in a James Webb telescope image. 
Uh, I mean, it's detecting with the infrared. It's detecting things that, uh, I mean, look at that. That's just wild. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. So here, here's another one. Mm. Um, I, I'm thinking that may be the Horsehead Nebula. And um, so another incredible image. I mean, my goodness, incredible image. Here's, here's one that was taken from uh, James Webb. And this one says... Uh, this is one of the most glorious images taken from the James Webb Space Telescope. It's loading up here, but uh, I mean, th these are just some of some of the examples you can find online of uh, just the incredible depth and um, of the universe. The incredible depth of these images, uh, space dust. Uh, stars, galaxies form, or stars forming, and That's stars incredible. exploding. Uh, th these are just some of the uh, images, and here's one of Jupiter uh, that was taken. Uh, here again, J Webb Telescope's new Jupiter images and expanded universe. Uh, so incredible things you can find online uh, with the, the color. Uh, yeah. So I mean, of course, the, this is ultraviolet, so it's detecting the ultraviolet uh, rays coming. You know, this this in the universe, so and the, in the universal objects, so. Just, just incredible. Mm. Mm. Truly, the heavens so, do declare the glory of God. Exactly. I was just going to say that. It's, <laughs> it's truly amazing. So then let's get into the last question here. What does the cosmological argument tell us about God after seeing that? So the cosmological argument tells us that there must be a being that exists beyond the scope of the universe. So we know that the that this being, this entity, must be non-spatial. By that, it must be spirit. It, this this entity, this divine being, cannot be restrained by space and time. Uh, we see that this being is far more powerful than anything in the universe. So no matter what force we look at in the universe, the creator of the universe must be far more powerful than the, even the most powerful force found within. Uh, so this 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 being must be omniscient, all-knowing, uh, to be able to put everything together as this being has. And in a sense, you could even say this being must be benevolent to create life didn't have to, but to create life and to be able to create uh, certain things like love. And, and this goes perhaps beyond the cosmological argument, but I think you could still make that argument from there, uh, that since we exist, created this universe to be observed, uh, created us in just a perfect spot as he did, uh, that this that this being must be benevolent, omnibenevolent as well. So... In other words, this per this being must be spirit, must have a mind, must be a must be a mind, must be intelligent, must be powerful, all powerful, must be beyond the scope of space and time, not limited in any capacity, and must be an all loving being. Well, I don't know about you, but that sounds a whole lot like the God of the Bible to yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say you also have, you know, the the other part of this. Is a is a personal being to personal care being. enough to, yeah, to care enough to to create a uh, perfect environment for uh, a a planet to be inhabited. Um, it just shows that he has to be personal. 
now we get into the personal God, we can get into the into the the uh, pages of Scripture, and we can find that personal God, Absolutely. the God that loves and cares, came to atone for us, atone for our our. Uh, and that's just amazing when you compare or compile all of these arguments together and come together with wow he actually was here on this earth with us and that's an important thing to mention curtis because the cosmological argument is strong but when you start making a cumulative case using the cosmological argument in addition to the ontological argument and the design argument Mm -hmm. and the moral argument you look at the um evidence for miracles and and the inner witness of the holy spirit and all these different things together evidence for the resurrection of jesus you compile all these things together and you've got a really solid case for the god of the bible amen amen well there you have it folks uh we here at bellator christie want to thank you for spending time together with us and we value that time our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and it becomes a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and become a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Doctor Christie Podcast. Until next time, Brian and I say... Sojourn friends, you've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. This podcast is an exclusive production of Bellator Christie Ministries and is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect the opinions of Bellator Christie Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. To see more from Bellator Christie Ministries, go to bellatorchristie.com. If you enjoy the Bellator Christie podcast, why not join us for the live taping of the show? This show is recorded every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And to catch the live show, consider going over to youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. We hope to see you there.